Hey, go ahead and be seated. We'll dismiss the kids to their worship time. Last week, uh, Isaac Henry preached a wonderful sermon on Micah 6 8, 6, 8, in which he posed this question uh, What does God require of you? And this week, I'm going to correct all the things Isaac got wrong. Uh, <laughs> just kidding, he did a great job. Um, and I really appreciate Chad and Isaac serving the body from the pulpit while I was gone these last two weeks. By the way, I just had a, a wonderful time in Arizona. Uh, mainly just hiking by myself and praying and thinking and uh, doing business with God. It was a very beautiful time in every way. So thank you for the many who prayed and many who served to make that possible. I'm going to come to a different question today. We're going to come to a different question than the one in Micah 6.8 today. It's a question not explicit like the one in Micah 6.8, but more implicit going through these books of 1 and 2 Samuel. It's a question that's very formative. It's formative not only spiritually but in every realm of our lives because all realms interact with the spiritual, just like all the different plants grow in the same forest soil. The question is this. Do we have a God in the box or a God on the throne? That is, in our dealings with God, in our mindset with God, do we have a mentality that God is a God in a box, a manageable God, a predictable God, a God who exists to help me? at least if I get it right, or do we remember, do we have our main picture that this God is mysterious and wild and unpredictable, at least to us? He is wonderful and beautiful, but he's also powerful and dangerous. He is a, a consuming forest fire, not just a little fire in the fireplace. Do we have a God in a box or an unhindered king on the throne? who is a person that draws us to himself even as we don't understand and sometimes don't like what he brings into our life. That's a question posed to us, especially in this story that we're going to look at in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, I'm going to take, I'm going to use our, our uh, sanctified imagination. I'm going to fill in some of the details reading between the lines of, I think, how all this goes. But you're going to see the main story we're going to look at is in 2 Samuel 6. I'm not going to read the story, just the first couple of verses. And then I'm, but I'm just going to go with the story and explain everything that happens. But you can read it there. There's a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles that gives a little bit more detail, some of the backstory. And there's also a story in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 7 about the ark, which is going to inform the backstory of some of this. So those are the main texts, if you want to write those down um, and look over those. But we're going to look at this story and ask that question. What does God do us? What does God do to people here, and which one do I most identify? Hey, would you pray with me as we start? Father, oh man, I, I love your word, and this story is, is wonderful but strange. Harsh, but also loving. And I can't do justice to it, God. But I pray that you do. I pray that you, through your spirit, would give me the ability to fully communicate as much as possible the glory and the truth of what happens here. You'd help me 
to simply forget or put behind it, you know, anything that would be distracting or unhelpful or wrong, but instead to be the way that you speak to your people and that you, God, would you please give us the grace to receive this, not just with our head, not just to understand what's happening intellectually, but also what you're saying to us about how we view you. Would you speak to us, please, God? Thank you, Lord. Amen. So I want to, uh, to delve into the story first by setting the stage, as it were. And I want to do that, uh, and this will actually form about half the sermon, by introducing to us one item and three people. One item and three people. Because all of these are involved in the story. And uh, first person we're going to see is David. And he has now moved in the, in the time of this story from being a young shepherd boy to now he is fully established in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He is fully established as the king of Israel. He has recently come into the, uh, the, the city of Jerusalem, that we would call it. He's conquered it. It was called Jabez. It was the city of the enemies right at the heart of God's kingdom of Israel. They had not been able to kick out the enemy until David, uh, through God's power, was able to do this. David is now established in his capital city. He has, he has been growing in fame. He has wives. He has children. He has more wealth. He has all the land there as his own domain. He has everything he could want. And yet David's heart is restless. David had everything. But what he wanted was more of God. David wanted God as near to him as possible. David wanted the invisible God to be as physically real as possible to us humans. He wanted the holy God to be as close to them as he could be to sinners like us. Now, he does expresses this desire through the second thing that we will mention. We'll come back to David, of course. But this item that I wanted to mention is what's known as the Ark of the Covenant. And it says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. So think of an army. He's calling, he calls up Joab, the Secretary of Defense, says, bring everybody together because I want them to know who the true king is. And he and all his men went to Bala in Judah. Another name for that is Kareth Jerim. So if you read one of the other accounts, it's just another name for this town to bring out from there the Ark of God. Now, look how this Ark is described. The Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, Yahweh El Shaddai, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. Now, to understand why David wanted to do this, and to understand the significance of this, we have to spend about the key figure here. The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. So that would tell us that in some ways, David, in his understanding in this story, is understanding the ark as being the way in which God not only is present with his people, but also is enthroned. It's almost his throne, the throne of Yahweh himself. Now, how does that work? By the way, these are the cherubim. This is the ark. Uh, the ark simply means a chest or a box. That's why Noah's ark has the same term, because they're both boxes. A little bit different in size, though, right? 
the Ark of the Covenant was probably about the same size, maybe a little bit shorter than this communion table. It was a chest. It was open because in that were the law of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Later on, the, uh, a pot of manna, an arid staff, a symbol of God's priestly power, what were put in there as well. But at heart, the ark simply means it was a chest. But it was much more than that. Because what God was saying was that there's something special about this ark. The cherubim were some sort of angelic being. We see them first in Genesis chapter 3, guarding the way to, the, to, to Eden. Are they angels? I think they're probably a little bit different classification of, of spiritual beings, of heavenly beings, than angels are. And the reason I say this is because every time you see someone described as an angel in the Bible, they never have wings. In fact, uh, very often people mistake them for humans because they can appear to take on our body. And uh, it, at least appear. Maybe they, they can fully take it on. I'm not going to go there right now. But cherubim, every time you see the word cherubim in the Bible, Genesis 3, the Ark, uh, many of the Psalms, and especially in, in, uh, in the temple scenes of Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel and Revelation, there's a mention of the wings every time. Now, what is that about then? Well, I believe these were intended to be understood by the people of their culture, and they would be understood by them, as that these represent the, the throne room attendants, those who stood beside the throne of the king, not to offer guarding, God doesn't need any guarding, but to protect the people who might come from the holiness of God. There's some interesting passages in scripture that talk about this. This is when the ark, when the ark is being built. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Leviticus 2. Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come in whenever he chooses into the front of the atonement cover of the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So, if you were to go in any temple in the Middle East, or really the whole world, at this, at this period of history, you would find some of their architecture many times was very similar to the, to the tabernacle and then the temple. And you would find that very often there was uh, a, an arrangement of increasing access to the God. Here's the one difference. Here's what set the temple and the tabernacle of Israel apart from every other place on earth that was religious oriented. When you went to that inner part, there was no picture, no statue of God. Oh, you go into, uh, into the Ark of the Egyptians, you're going to find whatever statue the statue of whatever god the temple's for. I mean, they had lots of gods. You go into the temple of Diana in Ephesus, and there is a statue of Diana. You go into the temple of Apollo, there's Apollo. You go into the temple of Dagon in the Philistines, and there's a Dagon, a physical representation of him. You go into the place of the tabernacle, and what you find is an empty throne. Because God cannot be away. The only concession God will make to the people and to us is this, I will appear as a cloud above the cherubim. That, what a beautiful metaphor, a symbol, by the way. A cloud, a uh, uh, smoke. That's real, right? You can see it. 
but it doesn't have a form. It's not something you can grasp and measure. And I believe God was using these types of metaphors to convey the idea, yes, I will be especially present in this place, but you've got to remember, I'm not like Dagon. I'm not like Apollo. I don't have a body. I fill heaven and earth. But this was God's special place because of what he had chosen to represent there. Um, so David makes this, and, and makes this declaration, and again, who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. Now, remember, David's got a throne in Israel, or in Jerusalem. And he's wanting to bring the true throne to him, though. By the way, this is worth a digression, because some of you might find it interesting. This is uh, the closest in time and culture throne that we have ever recovered from antiquity. Um, most of these didn't last. But this one, many of you know the story behind the unusual preservation within the pyramid of the tomb of King Tut, right? Steve Martin had a great song about him. Um, this is actually the throne of King Tut. So it's not with this European throne with ivory and all this. It's gold. It's magnificent. But you say, wait a second. All right. If this is supposed to be like a contemporary uh, throne of what a throne would have looked like in their mindset, that doesn't look like the ark. And, and, and you're right. Because the ark was not intended to be the throne, but rather the footstool towards the invisible throne of it's almost as if the heavenly realm is touching the physical right here and all the wicked handle, and even, even the high priest could only handle it once a year, was seeing the footstool, was seeing the smoke. By the way, do you notice what's on the arms surrounding the throne? Winged creatures. Winged creatures. So, I think I have that again. I have no idea why. So David brought again, oh, I know why. Because in the parallel passage, David makes very explicit this. I'm not just making this up. <laughs> I had in my house to build, in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. And you'll see one of the Psalms in your, in your notes, and there are at least two other places where the ark is explicitly called the footstool of God. So that is the idea, that God is here. This is the ark in, in, in their symbology. Uh, but this, this can't be contained to it. The most we can see is the ark and the presence of God above there. All right, enough about the ark. Let's come back to David. David wants this ark in Jerusalem. David wants this. He's willing to, to have all this, all this uh, pomp and circumstances because his heart is not content. He has everything a king could want, but he wants what a king by himself as king doesn't get. He wants to be close to God, something that can be available to all of us, right? He makes a determination. He makes a determination to bring up this ark, the throne, the footstool of the throne at least, to Jerusalem. So he sends forth the word to the next person we're going to meet in our story. His name is Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H. And uh, young people, don't name your kids Uzzah, because you know, not a good symbol here. Uzzah 
is the guardian of the ark. Now, technically, he's the guardian of the ark with his brother, Ahio, and his father, Eliezer, or grandfather, Eliezer, one of the two. Now, how did he get to be the guardian of the ark? Again, there's a backstory. It's in 1 Samuel 4 through 7. And it's illustrative to us. It's, it's important for us because we can begin to see how God had one idea for what the ark meant, but the people easily perverted that, and they put God in a box in a very, very specific way of wanting to use God. Second, or 1 Samuel 4, Israel's in trouble. The Philistines are pushing them. They're, they're having these battles. It's not going well for Israel. And, and they get this great idea. Let's bring in the ark to the battlefield. That will turn the tide. And no doubt they remember that when the, the priests took the ark into the Jordan River at God's command, the, the waters parted. And no doubt they could probably still see the remnants of the ruins of the city of Jericho where the people with the ark in front marched around it seven times, seven being a symbol of God's complete judgment upon Jericho, the symbol of this world and its value system as God comes into this land and to will do again, by the way, and they can see the charred remnants of when God threw the ark, or at least in the presence of the ark, took the walls down. And then they got power. We're going to use this. We need this. We got we got to kick some kick some Philistine. Well, you know what? And, and we need the ark to help us out, right? They wanted to use the ark. For them, it was God in a box. It was God that we could take from its place in the sanctuary, and we could bring it to the battlefield, and then God would do what we wanted. And it didn't go well, because God will not be used. God will not be used. Thirty thousand Israelite soldiers die on the day of battle. And what's worse, at least in one sense, the ark, this ark, is captured by the Philistines. God allows his ark, this very symbol of his presence, to be captured because of what they were perverting its use for. The Philistines find, however, that this God is just as dangerous to live with as the Israelites had found. And after a while, they decide to send it back to Israel. How do they do it? Well, it says they, they get a couple oxen, they get a new cart, or more probably make a new cart, something that's never borne a burden, put it on the cart, and they send the oxen away towards, uh, towards Bela, or Beth Sharam, uh, the region around here. Um, and they send it there. And uh, after a couple other events, what happens is that of a priestly family, a priestly family of Abinadab, and he is the overseer for the ark. That was 60 years ago. And this family lineage of guardianship of the ark has now passed on to his grandchildren, Uzzah and Ahio. Uzzah, then, has grown up with the ark. Uzzah has had the ark in his backyard for as long as this young man's been alive. Uzzah looks at the ark all the time, and he's the guardian of the ark, maybe with his brother. He is the one who takes care of it. I mean, can you imagine what, this would be all he is. This would be what he is about. I am the guardian of the ark of the Lord. That's all he's known. And for 60 years, the ark stays in that compound. By the way, we'll get back to Uzzah, but just a digression, you know, 40 of those 60 years were the reign of Saul. 
And not once during that time did he ever seek the ark. Not if he never went to it and he never brought it to himself. He, apparently like most of Israel, pretty much forgot about it or neglected it. Uzzah, when he hears the news that David wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem, uh, he has probably decidedly mixed feelings. I mean, on the one hand, this is a loss because now his position as guardian of the ark and guide, guiding the ark is going to be, you know, it's going to be done away with unless David retains his services for some reason. But on the other hand, can you imagine being the guy who's going to guide and guard the ark on this momentous, historic, national journey in front of David, in front of the army, in front of all these temple worshipers, I'm the guy who gets to do this. I imagine he had a lot of mixed feelings. But here's an interesting note. I'm reading between the lines of some of that, but not this part. They're going to be in charge of transporting the ark. How do they do it? How do he and his father and his brother probably, how do they decide to carry the ark? they decide to carry it the same way it had been received on a new cart carried by oxen. Now, this was in spite of the fact that this was a priestly family who had to know the law, the law of Moses, and it's quite explicit. You can read it in, in the book of Exodus, and, the, and it's quite explicit that the only way that the ark was to be carried was that these long poles were put, put into these golden rings on the side, and priests uh, of a certain, a certain family, not just any priest, by the way, they were the ones who had to carry it so that no human being would touch this ark. And he and his brother ignored the command. Why? Well, again, I'm reading between the lines. Maybe because after all these years of being in his care, he looked at the ark as something like something he had to take care of. And, and because of that, or maybe he wasn't, he and his brother weren't of the priestly family lineage because they were priests in the broad lineage, but maybe not in the lineage that was authorized to carry it. So they're just, well, we'll just do it our own way then. We don't want to give up the honor. Or maybe they felt like uh, the Philistines had made an improvement upon God's way of doing things. I don't know. But somewhere along the line, this priestly family, though they had to know the law, decided to flout it and to do things their own way. They put the ark on a cart. At first, things went pretty okay. The oxen start going. The worshipers start worshiping. The players start playing the instruments. David is there. Everyone's singing. They're starting to make their way to Jerusalem. And then one of the oxen stumbles Maybe there's a pothole in the road, stumbles, the ark, or the cart starts to wobble, and Uzzah, who's grown so familiar with the ark, reaches out his hand to steady it and finds that the ark he had guarded is now the source of his own death. For God breaks out against Uzzah, slays him on the spot. David was mad. It says, David was angry that day. Why? God, you had to know my heart. I'm doing this to honor you. I, I, I want you to come to me. I, I, I'm trying to do this. And, and you've just made this great possession into a funeral possession. How? 
and so angry and frustrated. And then it says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. It says it right there in that chapter, 2 Samuel 6. Why wouldn't you be? You have good intentions, you try, and yet it all goes terribly. David allows it to be taken to uh, a nearby compound, a family compound of one of his uh, warriors, Obed-Edom, and, uh, and he has time to reflect. Does he still want the ark to come? Here's what I love about David. David is angry with God. He is mad at God. David is afraid of God. David still wants God. Some of you have been there. You're so angry with him for what he's allowed to happen. You're so angry with him that his demands are so much. You're, you're afraid of him because it just seems like living with a holy God is like living with fire in your bedroom or, or living with, uh, you know, just this thing you can't contain, and that's right. But you still want him. That's where David was. That's where Saul never was. So David, either he's told or he does some more thought or more research, but the next time, a few months pass, he's going to try it again. And this time he tells, uh, and this is in the parallel passage of Chronicles, he tells the priest quite specifically, all right, we did it all wrong. You were supposed to carry it on your shoulders and not have any hand touch this thing. And so they do. They start again. And they, they bring up the ark of the right way. And, and there's worshipers, there's people, there's David singing before the Lord. And, and offering sacrifices. Now, this incredible scene happens here in the middle of this. David, it says, it says this very explicitly and importantly in both passages, Samuel and Chronicles. It says, David that day was dressed in a linen ephod. Now, if you've heard some pastors or some people talk about this, you know, they're, they're like, yeah, David was danced before the Lord and he was naked, you know, and and, and, or he was danced before the Lord and he was just in his tidy whiteies, you know, and because and he, he was so undignified and didn't care and everything. All right, that's not what happened. All right. David was not revealing his body any more than a manual labor would. He probably revealed his arms and his legs. The, the tunic, this linen ephod, every time you see it, especially in the book of Samuel, it, it just means one thing it means the garments of the priest, it's a priestly garment. Here's the point. It's not that David was showing his body. It's that what he did was, think about it, who he was. He laid aside his royal robes and his crown. And instead, on this most momentous occasion, instead of wearing the, the, the robes and the attire, the vestments of the king, he wears the vestments, the clothes of a priest. That's what's going on here. And David begins worshiping and dancing with God, with all his might. And at some point, they would, this was a long tunic. It would go down to the ankle. But if you were doing manual labor, you ever heard the phrase, gird your loin? The extra part of that garment, and you would tuck it into your sash. So it would probably come up to here, because that allowed you freedom to run, or that allowed you freedom to, to fight in a battle, or in this case, to dance. That's what was going on. And David is dancing, says he's leaping and whirling. This wasn't just this, some quiet little waltz going on here, right? 
He is ecstatic in his praise and his dance of the Lord. And why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't he be? I mean, David is getting it. David has eyes to see. He understands that the God of the universe, the one who made all things, the one who's perfect in power and righteousness and love, has chosen Israel, has chosen him to be king over Israel, and now is coming to his rightful throne in the heart of his people. And he can't help but dance at this. He can't help but respond, even though he knows, and through his very gesture shows, that he understands that he's not the real king. Yahweh is. David is a vassal of this king, an intermediary like a priest, someone standing between God and the people in order to bless them and help them to come to God. That's why he adorns the linen ephod. Well, all this is going great. This is the spiritual high point of David's life, spiritual high point of Israel's life. And then we come into the last person that, uh, that we're going to talk about here as we come to the near the end. And her name is Michal. Michal is the wife of David, the first wife of David. And so, in many sense, the, the queen mother, probably a charge of the palace. Interestingly, she's never called the wife of David here. She's called by another relationship. She's called the daughter of Saul. Because in this passage and in this book, she shows that she has the spirit of her father and not of her husband. Michal had been born in luxury. She'd been born in the power of the palace. And at some point, as a girl, maybe 14 or 16, she fell in love with a young warrior, a handsome guy, brave guy named David. And she tried David through this. But she got this husband she desired. And for a while, she was, she was in between. Her father and her husband, not a good place to be. Because her husband begins to get crazy jealous of David and his successes. And then eventually he makes the declaration that David must die. He sends word to that the next morning he's going to draw David from their house and bring him to the executioner's block. And she has to make a choice. She does. She warns David. She hears the plot. She warns David, helps him escape. And she chooses with David over her husband or over her father. That was 20 years ago. 20 years separates the girl who made that courageous choice from the woman who now looks out the window of the palace and sees this man dancing in priestly robes and despises him. Again, I'm reading between the lines, but I think what's going on in Mikkel's heart is this. She understood. She grew up as a king's daughter. And she knew that her father, for all his faults, and he had a lot, for in her mind, he at least knew what being king was for. It was for increasing your power. It was for increasing your authority. It was for getting more and more control and using God as part of that process. But this David guy, this David guy would go out there and lay aside his royal robes and take a, the clothes of a priest. He would dance in the most undignified way. This wasn't a stately procession. This was in a static dance. She looked at him she didn't get it. I, I, I love what someone said. I forget who. Those who are deaf will always despise those who dance. And she despised David in her heart. David comes back, spiritual high point of his life, comes back into the palace. And, uh, and the first thing he sees is the isolate glare of this woman. 
And the first thing he, hear, he hears is her biting sarcasm. Oh, how the king distinguished himself today. Dancing, unrobing his royal garments and dancing around like any of those vulgar fellows would inside of everybody, including these servant girls. Nice job, David. That was real kingly. David can't talk. He's so stunned that his words come out staccato-like. Don't even form in sentences. It was before the Lord. It was the Lord. It was the Lord who made me king over besides anyone else in your house. It was before the Lord I danced. His confusion gives way to determination. He looks at says, I'll become more dignified than this, and I'll be humiliated even more in my own eyes if it means bringing honor to the Lord. Mikhail turns, walks away into her chambers and walks out of the pages of this book. And it says that she had no children until the day of her death. Now, was that God's judgment? Possibly, but I think more probably it was just the fact that David was not willing to share a bed with someone with whom he shared nothing else in common especially on the spiritual level. But by doing that, she shows us what it means to have God in the box. Wow, I'm really going long, aren't I? All right, I'm going to wrap this up here, promise. Sorry. Get carried away. The story is just... I wrote down some signs of a God in the box mentality. We're just going to wrap up with this. We're going to draw this together here. What are the signs of a God in the box mentality? Because it's not just the story about these people. One of these is going to be like us. And we will be whichever worst person on the screen is most likely will be the person who we view God most similarly to. I said that all mangled up, didn't I? How we view God will determine what kind of person we are. And if we have a God-in-the-box mentality... We're going to be one of these people. What does that look like? I wrote down five signs of a God-in-the-box mentality. See if any of them resonate at all. First, God must play by the rules, and I know the rules. If I do my part, he does his. Second, God can be possessed. He is my personal savior, as if I have him in my back pocket or my backpack. Or at least, you know, what's important about God is what he does for me. Third, God can be used. He's useful in solving my problems and blessing me, making me ahead in school or in sports or my job, blessing me, helping me realize my goal. He's like the ultimate life coach. Both Saul and Israel had this mentality, right? A God in the box for Saul, for Israel. God was in a box that you would take down from the, sh- from the shelf when you needed help. And when your problem was solved one way or the other, you put the box back up there. Fourth, I can have a little of God. He can be portioned out of my life as I had portioned out a piece of pie. He is for set times like Sunday mornings, set places like church. But he's not for the whole of my life. He's not for my home life. He's not for my job. He's not for my school life. He's not for the athletic field. He's portioned out. He's God in a box. Fifth, God's relationship with me is transactional, consistent, and fair. I give him my good works, my good efforts, my good intentions, and he gives me the goods I want. That is exactly how Israel viewed the God in the box in our first story we talked about. And that's exactly how unlike God, Job, found him to be. 
how Joseph found him to be, how Daniel found him to be, how all the martyrs of church history have found him to be, who worshipped him anyway. The results of the God-of-the-box mentality are always death or a lack of life. 30,000 soldiers died in the battlefield when Israel wanted to use God as a prop for their military campaign. Uzzah lost his very life when he wanted to touch the God of the box and control it in some way. And, by the way, presuming that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. I stole that from R.C. Sproul. It's a good quote. Mikkel, she doesn't die, but instead, where there should be expected life, she is barren. You see, when we do not have a right relationship and mindset with God, life cannot flow to us because life comes with God. It's a package deal. The alternative is David. This is the picture of his God. He is on the throne and I'm not. I am his priest serving him by serving others and blessing others. I am the worshiper before him giving all I have. I am coming to him, even though sometimes I get angry with him. Even times I get confused and afraid of him, I'm still coming to him because he is the source of my life and throne of the Ark of the Covenant within his city. Do you want this? Then make the choice you get off the throne of your heart and place him there. Ask him to show you any way you have a God-in-the-box mentality. Ask him to show you that. Seek his forgiveness and ask him to do whatever is needed. Listen, are you willing? Ask him to do whatever is needed to let come into your life whatever has to be there, including pain, for God to fully be enthroned in your life. Father, thank you. I, I pray that uh, your spirit would speak to us in a way that I can't about what it means for us individually. As we sing this last song, God,